You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater's mission is to re-energize and reinvigorate the American theater and the live performance arts by giving talented veterans a platform to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was David Tucker. David is the first playwriting judge for one of our playwriting competitions that we've had on the show. And, um, you know, it's funny with the amount of stuff that we at Vet Rep have had going on lately. I'm not going to lie. It's been hard. It's been hard to find time to squeeze into podcasts, as you guys have probably noticed. Um, I don't like to flake out on them. Uh, podcasts thrive off consistency, and I uh, fucking loathe it when we miss a week. And we haven't had to do that too often. We have had an awful lot of stuff going on, though. And um, podcasting is probably best done by people who um, can make it their priority. It's kind of hard when you're doing stuff to then get really involved and invested in what other people are doing because you're kind of like wrapped up in your own shit. And you're like, yeah, I I understand. It's interesting about your stuff, but I've got like a bunch of things boiling right now and I kind of can't keep my mind off them. Uh, So it's hard to (laughs) to have a... uh, you know, to sustain interest in something anybody else is doing, especially when you're doing uh, something like us and it's a little um, entrepreneurial and kind of in its early stages and it's uh, taking up a lot of bandwidth. That said, that's a long way of saying that uh, we haven't, you know, I, I, I fucking hate not uh, getting the podcast out when we need to, as we need to, and doing it as well as we possibly can. That said, uh David was a very interesting guy to me for a lot of reasons. He came to our attention because Fred Graver, who's the chief judge for this iteration of the competition, um, was, who you know I'd met a little over a year ago. I think he, we were introduced to him, and Fred's just it couldn't be a nicer, uh, savvier dude. I, I really uh, like Fred, and Fred has been heavily involved with the Writers Guild Initiative, which you'll hear us talk about in this episode. And he knew David through WGI. And uh, when he said, uh, when he came on, when Fred came on as chief judge, he said, you know, um, would you like me to ask, uh, you know, this veteran I know that's in WGI, that's an established playwright, to be part of it. Uh, His name's David Tucker. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. He made total sense. I, um, you know, saw David's work and where he'd been produced and the theaters he'd worked at. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, to talk with David though, um, it's so funny. You never know what you're getting into. And especially because as David says, he's not big on social media. There's not a ton of information out there about him. Um, so I didn't know necessarily what I was getting. I had a pretty good feeling that this would be a fun conversation, but you just, you just don't know. Um, and I had no idea where the conversation was going to take us. I didn't know how long David had been in. I didn't know all the things he had done in the military and uh, that he was able to speak articulately about them. And I I think he's such a perfect marriage of artist and warrior, you know, uh, especially alternating as he did for so many years between the theater world and his military service. Uh, He kind of gets the best of both worlds, this 
professionalism, a sense of duty, uh, obligation, um, uh, physical, um, what's the word? I mean, I guess bravado or physical, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this, uh, willingness to put your body on the line and kind of the selflessness that that takes. Yeah, if I'd had more caffeine, I might have come up with a better phrase than that. But anyway, you get my point. But anyway, to combine all that with this, uh, with the beautiful, nuanced language and articulation of a theater professional, uh, and and a sense of, of flair and sense of theatricality and, and sense of play, uh, it made David just a great conversationalist. I really enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, I think you guys will too. Um, and yeah, very. I was very interested, as you'll tell in the episode, about how the hell he managed to balance the the lives that he balanced uh, for so many years um, between the theater and the military. Anyway, uh, that's I won't spoil any more of the episode. You guys will get to hear all that for yourselves. Um, I think we left a little bit more meat on the bone than I would have liked with David. Uh, I think there's more conversations to be had in the future because... Uh, I realized after the episode ended, I was like, damn, I didn't ask him more about this or more about that. But anyway, to be continued, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of David Tucker. All right. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, this is um, this is fun, man. Uh, I'm really excited. First off, that you're a judge um, for our competition because I think uh, it's about time we married a veteran and playwright resumes together on the judging panel. I think that is a really cool thing. But then I was like, hey, I really should talk to him. I really should find out like all the ins and outs of this. I can't kind of can't let that go. Just like, oh, hey, thanks for judging and never really get into the weeds of how you got to where you are. So let me start with this. Well, can, what I came, say, yeah. can I just say I was really honored to be uh, to be part of that? <clears throat> no, I just want to interject that real quick because, um, you know, it's great because some of the plays had a military content. And so mm-hmm. it was great to kind of speak to that uh, in the group when we had our discussions and such. So I was really, you know, um, I was really appreciated that I was invited to be part of it. And I really want to, at some point, see your theater space and come out there and see what you guys are doing. Well, I appreciate that. Um, if I could play travel agent, I would say don't come for about three to five years. And then we'll really have something to show you <laughs> right now. Right now, we are so nomadic and our rental space. It's great. It's fun. But we basically we rented too much space. So we have these offices and then we rented the spaces across the hall for no good reason. So we were like, oh, okay, I guess we'll throw up a three and a half inch stage and do stage readings every Saturday night. Kind of gauge, you know, what the theater going audience is like out here since there are no professional theaters out here. And uh, and it's fun, but it's, it and it, it is fun. We wallpapered, it, it looks like Sherlock Holmes Den, but it's not, you know, it's not going to the public on like an opening night. It's not, it's not like a proper theater theater yet. But we do have spaces that in a couple of years will be cool. Well, um, I'm out but- here in Seattle and we've got a bunch of, uh, you know, a, a variety of levels of theater. So I think it's just great that you guys have opened the doors, right? Opened the opened up for folks and uh, it's got to start somewhere, right? So you're obviously on your path. A hundred percent. Well, 
So let me dime you out a little bit. I don't know if I'm diming you out. I'm diming somebody out because Fred Graver, the chief judge, he he said to me um, that there was some reticence amongst the judges about weighing in on the place because they're like, well, who am I to really give feedback and all that? Were you one of those? Were you a reticent one or were you willing to give constructive criticism and like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's obvious. Well, you the thing is, is that, you know, it depends. It depends on what the playwrights really want. You know what I mean? Because some playwrights want criticism or I wouldn't say criticism. I say feedback and and others are like, just tell me if I'm in or not. You know what I mean? And so uh, like and what I would encourage playwrights to do, too, is also if you have a circle of friends or folks that are you trust with your writing that you can say, hey, can you look this over? Give me your thoughts. Um, that's what I do with that's what I do with the things that I create is I have a, a couple key people that I send it their way. And that was the only concern was like, you know, in terms of like the judges, like, are these people, do they really need to hear from me? You know, in terms of, um, I mean, they don't, you know, a lot of times they may not know who we are or, or even care. And so that's why we were a little, um, there was a little bit of hes- hesitancy in terms of like, you know, how much, what kind of feedback do they want? How much? Sure. Um, and so there's a variety of things that kind of played into that. I'm always, I always welcome giving feedback because you're helping someone take the next step. And so, um, and not that, and, and I always tell whenever I'm, I'm teaching, uh, I always tell people basically that, you know, well, the class is going to provide you feedback as the author or playwright, you need to, you should listen to each of it, but then you kind of take in what you agree with right. and then right. apply it. And that, that you don't, that you don't just simply disregard, but be, um, gracious and accepting, you know, and hearing it at least. And because people are trying to honestly provide you their thoughts and, and um, they want to see you succeed. So I always tell yeah. people, listen to all of it, but don't, you have to choose for yourself what actually is applicable for your particular work or, or play. That's right. That's right. And I think one of the things we had thought um, when we were first building out the competition, one of the things we promised everybody's feedback. So I felt very comfortable, like, Hey, yeah, cool. They're they're up for getting feedback, and they they know what they're getting into. But that said, <clears throat> one of the things we started to realize is if all the submissions were on a bell curve, you know, you guys end up seeing you know the best stuff. But what I find really intriguing is that meaty part of the bell curve, where people have some great ideas. They're not technically at the place where they can execute them and and exploit all those ideas that they have and really get them on the page the way they need to yet. But I see that as being a place where at some point we're going to try to figure out ways, whether it's a class, a workshop structure, something, because that's where I really think not that your feedback is not going to be super valuable to those that are in the top 10, but I think that's where it's going to get even more, you know, bang for your buck is I think the the feedback that you guys can give to them when we figure out a way of, of getting us some sort of feedback system set up for people in the meaty part of the bell curve. And I don't know if that's a matter of integrating them uh, somehow into some sort of residency or something like that, or spotlighting different people that we want to work with. But I think um, I, I just can tell how many individual playwrights that I'm thinking of right now that I know would benefit from constructive insight into their work in ways that even the top 10, hopefully they get a lot of value out of it, but their work is already relatively polished. Um, but 
I, I, I'm just really excited to see what happens with that meaty part of the bell curve and the growth in the uh, veteran playwriting community that comes out of that. Well, I always like to see veterans putting pen to paper. And so, you know, we do these, um, where, where I know Fred from is actually the Writers Guild Initiative, because uh, that's where we work with creating, uh, we do working or workshops for both the wounded warriors right. and also their caregivers and a variety of populations. We just went recently out to uh, Pendleton prison in uh, Indiana and did a workshop mm. with their incarcerated there. But the thing is, is that, you know, what's, what's challenging. And, I, and I'm glad you're kind of thinking ahead, like, how do we, how do we meet this need? It's because you could take each of those plays, those, those 10 plays even, and talk them. I mean, there's so much to kind of discuss and kind of weigh in on that. Um, I mean, it seems like it needs a bigger, there's a bigger forum for that to happen. You know what I mean? To be honest. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I know the way Fred, and I don't know if this is a writer's guild thing. I don't know if, if where the inspiration or where the, <clears throat> where this methodology happened, but, but kind of breaking it down into um, feedback sessions and having all the judges chime in and talk through the plays was definitely not the way it was done the first time. And I'm interested how that all, it seems like that's gone seamlessly. It seems like it's been a really natural, um, productive way of getting feedback on all the plays. Um, but I don't know. I mean, is that a normal writer's guild thing? Is that kind of well, a WGI framework? You know, that, that session was, I mean, you know, we, you're, you're huddling a bunch of, these playwrights together and everyone's got strong opinions. And so you end up go through different plays and you really end up, everyone's got a different take on different, different things. And so you really end up advocating for the ones that you really think, mm. Hey, this is the one I want to, you know, uh, I really want to see be selected as the primary. And then, but you have some others that are very close in quality too. Mm. And so it's a very interesting discussion because um, it's very, uh, passionate, I would say. And, and, you know, and it's great because you want people who are going to be enthusiastic and who are going to have opinions yeah. that can yeah. hopefully help. So I found it very intriguing. We do a similar kind of system. We have a, for the writer's guild initiative, we have a screenwriting, the Collier screenwriting contest, which is kind of similar in which, you know, everyone reads the plays, or in that case, the screenplays, and then they kind of narrow it down to their top couple picks. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes just a discussion. And that discussion, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you, I don't know, you know, you don't always change your mind, but you can certainly be swayed sometimes. Right. And so it's very, it's a lively discussion in that case. And as was this as well, it was a very lively discussion. Yeah. I keep wondering if I, I told Fred, I was like, he's like, do you think, you know, are you comfortable with me going forward with it like this? And I was like, yeah, no, absolutely. I was like, I mean, as long as it doesn't, you know, become 12 angry men or something and one person's getting browbeaten there and having to, you know, <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how close or how far that is from the reality of it, but uh, that was my only thought. Well, we all feel very, I mean, we all feel very strong about certain plays as you would want, you know, and so, because we're investing time as well. I mean, we're wanting to read these through. We want to be care very careful in our like analysis and thought process on it. And we take notes, you know, like I take mm -hmm. notes for each play that I read um, just to kind of keep, keep that foremost in, in front of my mind, um, what I think worked and what I think maybe could use some improvements. So no, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't an outlier where it was folks were, 
you know, um, I mean, very much it, it eventually gravitates towards a consensus. Mm. Um, so it's so which, which is good. I mean, but there are it's it is a very it's play by play by play. Yeah, we discuss yeah. every single one in depth. So let's talk about you, so that people, any playwrights listening to the to to uh, this can go. Oh, this is the guy that's sitting in judgment of my work. I got it. Um, were you always a writer? Were you always creative from an early age? You know what's interesting, and I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. Um, so I've always I've loved writing, and I think it was probably like in middle school we were writing. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd get like a, a simple assignment, and I would like to do these these elaborate stories that went on far longer than than the teacher intended. And um, and then we'd apply that writing to other classes like biology classes, you know, and such. We would I would want to do a paper that was more creative in nature. And so huh. I so I've always I've always wanted to be, you know, writing has always been the one thing that I have wanted to um, be first and foremost. That's how I always saw myself. But what's funny is that life just takes you down other paths. And yeah. a lot of the other areas that I was actually in some ways I feel more successful for are, are, are those that in which I didn't anticipate at that younger age, you know what I mean? In terms of like the military and in terms of like photography and other things like that, you know? And so, um, but writing has always been something that has always speaks to me and, uh, and I continue to do it to this day. Was it always is the through line is the theme of all of those disparate activities. Has it always been about story? Has it always been that's just a love of story and that even the military, it's kind of living out a story and the photography is still tell, storytelling in a different form? You know, I, to be honest, here's how I see my, here's how I kind of, kind of delineate those things in my head. My photography is really, to be honest, like a celebration of the beauty of the world, hmm. meaning that, you know, um, I'd like to find the things that I find unique or and, I, and that's what I want to capture on the on film because I used to shoot and I still shoot film, but I've just transferred to digital. So that's where photography lands for me. Whereas writing, I'm more interested in the darker side mm. of like, how do you survive the things, you know, like I have one play called Lubyanka and it's about this guy who's in the Lubyanka prison uh, in Russia in the, in the thirties during the Stalinist purges, you know, and how do you survive those darkest of yeah. times? What's the human spirit find to be able to say, I'm going to take another step forward, you know, whereas the military, what I love about the military, you know, to be honest, I, I had not in, I was, I put my, I was putting myself through college and I joined the military and then I just grew to love it because it's the wind in your face, to be honest. Cause like, mm. You know, it's the win in your face experience. You get, you do things in the military that you would never right. imagine in the civilian life. Like I was in it, you know, I was in the special operations community, but also airborne troop and all that kind of stuff. And it's, so there's things that I was able to do and experience and places to go and see that I would never otherwise have been able to do. And so I, um, I grew to love the military. I was in for 22 years and I, and I look at that experience um, because I, you know, I went into the military, so I couldn't do the football path that I was going to do college. Mm. Um, But I'm in many ways more grateful that I was able to serve my country. It just felt like a lot more, I don't know, a lot more um, 
communal in that regard. You know, it's a part of the community. It's also giving back to your country. There's a patriotism to it, but also the people that I work with, you know, they came across a spectrum of, of race and ethnic and backgrounds. And, yeah. and so um, it's, it was just a great experience. When did you join the military? So I joined May 5th, 1982. And so, um, okay. yeah. And so then I retired, I'd been deployed. So I was in a mil- so I was initially uh, an interrogator interpreter back then it was called 97 uh, echo. And so I was um, in the German language. So I went mm. to DLI for German and then, um, then I became, I went through an ROTC program. So I was initially, you know, PFC and, and, and mm-hmm. enlisted. And then uh, went to ROTC, became a military intelligence officer, and then worked in the the SIAP community, psychological operations, um, for a long time. And then uh, had a couple years in special forces, and then um, and then continued forward with SIAP as well. And mm-hmm. so I deployed to Haiti in '94, mm-hmm. Kosovo in 2000. And then I commanded a PSYOP unit in Baghdad, uh, 2003, 2004, and then retired after that deployment. But you stayed MI the whole time, or did you ever end up branching to PSYOP? Well, you know, um, at that time, PSYOP was in the branch. And so I was an Mm -hmm. MI branch, and I love the MI branch because it's all about information. It's all about putting, it's all about, it's almost like writing in a way, because you're taking disparate pieces of a puzzle and you're kind of finding the connections between them mm. that give you that create a narrative. And that's what writing is, you know, essentially. Um, and so in that way, I, I always stayed as an, I was always an MI officer, but I had a specialty, a secondary specialty of, um, of PSYOP officer as well. And, uh, and I was going to go special forces, but then I got offered grad school. And so I, I took that instead. So, when you joined the military, obviously that was kind of in a lull, right? It was coming after Vietnam. It was kind of the military was just starting to rebuild after post-Vietnam era. Did you feel like there was a stigma joining the military? Did you feel like it was, I mean, obviously you're, you said you were joining for college, but I mean, what was, what was your thoughts and feelings about joining? Was it with a sense of pride or was it just a sense of, you know, suffer it to be so now? Well, you know, I joined and then, um, and then I was, like I said, enlisted for a little while and we were doing back then reforger exercises, which mm-hmm. are a return of, of, uh, when you're in the side community, you get pulled, you go all over the place. And that's one thing I really, um, I really loved about it. And so, um, but during that time I was also in, uh, ROTC, I, I later went to ROTC and I, and this was in the, this is in the, you know, mid early eighties. And I was called a baby killer by someone. Cause I was walking across campus mm-hmm. in uniform and, you know, I just thought, so I wrote a, an op-ed for the college newspaper because mm-hmm. I was a journalism major. And I just said, you know, don't blame, don't blame the hammer for what the hand has done. You know what I mean? Don't blame soldiers for serving their country and doing the things that they have committed to do by being a soldier they don't make those political decisions. That's not, you know, yeah. we, we do what we are ordered to do and we do so willingly. And so, um, so it was a period, there was still that lingering very much. So, um, 
anti-military aspect. And we had a lot of Vietnam vets in the unit as well. Mm. And so that was interesting too, to just to see a generational change. Yeah. Especially when your career ended up spanning all the way to the GWAT and you got to see the, the, what it was like from the draft era, the resi- the residual soldiers from the draft era, all the way up to this very volunteer force. What did you see? I mean, or, I'm, I'm not trying to project on that. I mean, maybe it wasn't that big a difference, but I imagine it would be um, and just the type of soldiers you see and the types of folks that you were surrounded by. Well, I'll tell you, we were one of the first. So we went, um, we were there in Baghdad May 1st. So that's when my unit arrived in Baghdad. And so, um, and we were there, we were supposed to be there nine months. We got extended to 11, nice. um, which was not great. Uh, just in terms of, I had to tell the unit, you know, as a commander, I'm the one that had to break it to the unit and they were not happy. Sure. Um, sure. But, you know, it was interesting. We came back and, and we channeled through Bragg and we were at the airport and we had a mixture of folks that were mixture uniform and civilian clothes in my, you know, our group, in our group. And I'll tell you, we had someone walking toward us and, and I was not, we had been, when you're in, in Iraq, that especially that first year, you don't have a lot of access to media. I mean, we didn't have our email for a long time yeah. and phones took forever to get set up. And so we were like in a kind of a news-free zone, you know, mm-hmm. for a large part. And so we didn't know how we we're going to be received. And this guy starts walking toward us and we started standing up like, is this going to be a confrontation, you know? And he just wanted to come over to say, thank you for your service. But we had no idea how the American public was receiving the war. And so it was interesting. And because I'd been in earlier when I saw what happened to those Vietnam vets um, who later became peers in my unit, I had a concern too, you know, but this guy just wanted to say thank you. And so it was such a radically different reception from, because we didn't know how we're going to be received. It was a radically different reception than what we had seen a generation prior. You know what I mean? So at that point, having done Haiti, Kosovo and all that, did you feel like something was missing in your military career? Um, did you feel a need to stay in when 9-11 happened and go, okay, finally, there's going to be an actual hot war? I mean, there have been the Gulf War and all that, but I mean, this was something that now, uh, how much How much did the GWAP matter to you? How much did you feel like it completed your career or ticked another box in your career for you personally? Well, you know, I believed in the Haiti mission because we were reinstating mm-hmm. uh, Aristide, President Aristide. Right. Now, granted, you know, it's still his his tenure also went corrupt as well. So it's always that's always hard to see. And I also really believed in the Kosovo mission. Mm-hmm. We were the first, we were the second rotation in. Mm. Um, and which to stop, you know, stop those, uh, the massacres that were occurring, mm-hmm. particularly against the coast of our Albanian people. So those are things I really, truly believed in, you know, the, um, the Iraq thing was a little more of a challenge in terms mm. of, it was a challenge in terms of, it did not feel like Afghanistan did. I didn't go to Afghanistan, but you know, the Afghanistan um, conflict war mm. felt like we were definitely going after the, the folks who had attacked us. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a direct mm-hmm. correlation. It was a little more challenging with Iraq because I was a commander and I'd been with the unit two years prior already. These were my soldiers. 
I um, truly wanted to make sure that we were that we were all taken care of. That I brought as many home as I took with me, right? Mm-hmm. But it was more challenging in some regards because, as an intelligence officer, you just didn't see the pieces connect. You know what I mean in terms of why we were going into Iraq. So that was a harder. That had a little more of an internal conflict for me, but. You know, I, w- I was going to stand beside my troops no matter what. And, and I wanted to make sure that um, that we got there, that we did the mission well, that uh, that we succeeded. And I felt like we did in terms of what our mission was in Baghdad, which was the center of gravity mm-hmm. for the Iraq war, you know, because mm-hmm. how Baghdad goes, the rest of the country goes. And so I was very proud of what we did and achieved over there. And None of my troops, I didn't lose a single soldier, you know, and so that was another point of pride. Yeah. That's obviously a concern. You know, you have 92 troops over there. Right. And and we're on the streets daily doing our job and interacting with the community, but also with a target on your back, you know, wearing the uniform. So, you know, I was proud to have done that. And I think as an officer, the reason why you're in the military is because you want is to lead troops into combat. I mean, that's what, that's kind of the apex mm-hmm. of what that's the apex of achievement in terms of, can we do this? Can we succeed? Can we do it well? And, um, and I felt very proud of, of what we did. So in that, in that regard, I always believe in stepping out, leaving the game on at the, at the crest mm-hmm. of success mm-hmm. instead of, you know, when you're, 45 years old and throwing you know footballs into pick sixes and stuff like that. I would rather leave at the at the crest of not to pick on Tom Brady, but um, <laughs> but I'd rather leave at the crest of achievement rather than um because the next step for me was to be like a staff officer uh on a battalion or or even to head up a battalion. So um and I had two kids, I have two boys. One was six months old when I left. Mm-hmm. The other was four. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, my youngest didn't know who I was, you know, because yeah. Yeah. I'd been gone 13 months of his life. And my, my four-year-old, then five-year-old, I was going, I was at the airport and he was, I, was, I had come home from the war, but I was getting on an airplane to go back to the unit because I had to take care of mm-hmm. change of command stuff. Then he started crying and I said, what's going on? You know? Yeah. And he said, you left last time when I was four and didn't come back until I was five. And then I realized the impact that my absence was having on them. And, you know, I'd served 22 years at that point, And I thought, you know, now is time for me to shift my focus to their lives and not yeah. be about just what I want to succeed, what I want to see succeeding in my life. You know what I mean? I want them to be happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, that makes complete sense. If you had never gone to Iraq, if either the orders hadn't come in or if you'd gotten out earlier and and had never gone deployed into Afghanistan or Iraq, do you think there would have been a void? Would you have felt a void? Would you have felt like something was missing? Or would you have felt like, no, I punched my fun car just fine during the years I was in? I think it's the same question you would ask Barry Sanders in terms of never making it to the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Is is it 
do you you had a, you had a career it was it was you felt like it was successful you achieved a lot of the things you wanted to do but that is the epitome of why you're an officer is to train your troops up for the moment and then when that moment comes that you meet the moment and i yeah. do think if that if there had not you know you never want to war you never want a war to occur i think soldiers more than anyone know the price to be paid um and so you never want war to happen, but when it does happen, then you want to meet the moment. And so, yeah, I think it would have been, um, there would have been an aspect of a challenge unmet or challenge untaken, you not taken. Um, but I would have still felt proud of the service I'd, you know, I'd, right. I'd been right. part of and, and my, my experiences there. Were you active the whole time? Were you active? The it, whole no, time? it was a mixture. I mean, it was like the, you know, the deployments are active, but I was a reserve a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but the challenge is in the side community, because most of the side right. world is in the reserve side of the house. Right. And so we were going places constantly, um, even as a reserve sure. force, whether, you know, it was like going to Korea and I've been in Korea, I've been into Europe and exercises all over the place. And so, and you were um, we still were, KPOC, so you're still part of Special Operations yes, Command, right? Yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. So Bragg was our home. Fort Bragg was our definite our home base. Where was home for you? Where did you actually live? Well, I lived, I lived mainly on the West Coast. So mm-hmm. I lived in Northern California. I lived in Oregon, and I live currently, like I live now, in Seattle. And so I was always in units that were on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But ironically, we were always pointed towards Europe. And so, um, so during, this was during the cold war. So we were pointed towards East Germany at the time, Mm. um, Czechoslovakia. And so that's why I, my language training was in German. Gotcha. Um, even though my background is Hispanic and I would have loved to learn Spanish, but I learned (laughs) German instead. (laughs) When were you writing? Were you writing while you were in or were you writing? Did that start after you got out? Well, you know, I would say I was trying to write while I was in, okay. but it was not, you know, if you're doing the military side, right, then that's what's occupying the majority of your brain, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I didn't, I don't feel like I could, I didn't feel like I was in the zone to write until I got out, until I retired, because then I could, I could give full focus to what I was trying to do in terms of the headspace, you know, because I would see things um, in the military that kind of caught my eye. Uh, but for the most part, so I was doing writing, but I don't feel like it was really, really landed to the degree that I wanted to until I was out. Did you have that in the back of your mind though? Was that always an aspiration, like a career aspiration that you were going to be writing and that kind of never waned or did that, start to intensify as you started to get out and it reached those last, last couple of years. Well, you know, when I came back where it really kind of, I guess, came to, I'd always planned on writing because writing was, has always been a part of my life, but it was when I came back, I came back from the war. And like I said, we were in the first groups there and the first groups back. And so a, a friend of mine, uh, he was an artistic director at, uh, at Seattle repertory theater, where I was also mm-hmm. working. Um, as well when I wasn't in the military and he 
all these people were coming up to me and asking me, well, what was it? What, what was it like? What was it like? Or what did you experience and all this kind of stuff? And that was all that, that was friends. That was strangers. That was family. And I just did not want to, it was hard to explain. And mm. I couldn't, I couldn't explain it in a way that really felt comprehensive. So my friend, mm. Jerry, he said, you know what? Create a play. And I told him, I said, the thing is, is that my experiences is episodic. It's not like there's a narrative that I really kind of point A to point B to point C. It was like, this moment stands out for me. And this moment stands out for me. And he said, just write it. And so I did that. And he, he staged it and directed it. And so, um, and then you could see the narrative arc once you put all those pieces together. But I do admit some of the scenes cut close to the bone mm. and I would have to walk out of rehearsal at mm. those moments. And then I would, and then gradually I would be able to stay just a little longer and until I could stay, I could sit through the whole rehearsal period. Cause it was too, it was very emotionally challenging. And to be honest, I, I didn't know at the time because I don't think you know it when you're in the middle of it, but I had PTSD and there were issues that were, were affecting me in ways I didn't anticipate. And so, um, and that result, I feel now that I feel like that's resolved to me, you know, in terms of that aspect of it, but it was, it was hard to kind of do it, but then finally, then I could just have people come see the damn play and it spoke yeah. to everything that I experienced. And one of the things that was one of the more touching moments at the end of the play, we included, we had a, we had taps play. And we had a roll up on the, one of the screens um, projected the names of the soldiers from Washington state where the play was mm -hmm. being produced mm -hmm. that had been killed in the, in, in Iraq. And, and then we had a talk, uh, talk back after the, uh, after the play. And one of the uh, older gentlemen came up to me and just said, I just want to shake your hand. I said, uh, okay, you know, that's great. He goes, my son's name was on that list wow. and it just, it, he said, I'm so glad to have seen this play to understand what it was like. And I just was, I didn't know what to say because other than thank you, because sure. it was like, it was like such an emotional moment. And uh, anyway, so that was, but that's what the whole intent was to be able to speak the things that I couldn't say, or I didn't feel comfortable saying and letting the people experience it through writing. Would you, so first off, why a play? Where, where did the theater come in? Why wasn't it a book? Why wasn't it an article? So my, uh, my graduate studies is in theater. And so my background is directing and writing. And so that, uh, and I work, I've worked in a number of theaters, professional theaters. Um, and so that was my natural instinct was to go to something that had a communal experience to it. And, you know, we were very much in a Seattle's pretty, you know, I would say progressive or liberal environment. And so sure. um, that's who I wanted to tell the story to, to people, to let them understand this is a soldier's perspective. And it didn't have a, there was no political slant to it. I wanted to be more, not documentary style, but I wanted to be true to the experience that I went through. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there wasn't a political slant. I wanted it to be. Um, just grounded in truth. And so, um, and it was, we had sold out shows. And so I was very pleased wow. with that. And, wow. and that was kind of the beginning. You know? So w let me just get the timeline right. 
when you were going and getting your master's in theater, were you still in or was that right after you got yeah. in? So this is the goofy part. So I had two opportunities that happened at the same time. I was in the reserves at the time and I was in the special forces unit. And I had an opportunity to do like the Q course, which is the officer's right. version of the special forces course. And I had grad school coming at the same time. And I had to decide at that point in my life, am I going to do the military? Is that all I'm going to do? Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm going to focus on everything on? Or am I going to be able to pursue also this artistic aspect of my life? And to be honest, I chose the artistic side. And so I got, a, I, I went into San Diego, got a master's degree, MFA, a master of fine arts in, uh, in theater down at San Diego state and started working. <laughs> Ironically, I was, I was in Haiti. I was in Haiti in a Humvee and that's where I did the job interview for the Old Globe theater. Um, and it was wow. like through seven different connections because it was wow. delayed from Haiti to the operator, to brag, to, you know, Miramar to a local landline or local operator to, um, to the Old Globe theater. And that's what we did. We did a, we did the interview over the, over the radio and, so when I came back from uh, Haiti, you know, I had a, I had a civilian job waiting for me in theater, professional theater. Wow. Okay. So that, okay. That, that's a key element. Okay. So, so definitely storytelling, theater writing was that, that was clearly um, a next chapter that you'd already outlined for a large part of your military career. I mean, if we're talking yep. 94, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, because I, I wanted that to be a part of a strong part of my life, even post-military. Where Then where did that come from? Why did you even apply for it? What was, what was the theatrical influence in your life that even made you think that that was a viable career path? Um, as opposed to when you had your college degree in journalism and like going down a more conventional, traditional storytelling path of journalism or even film studies or something like that. Why was it theater, the captain? You know, theater is, there's an immediacy to it. And there is a connection that you get on stage that you don't get. Like if you write a book, you know, it's great because people are reading it in different areas, but you are not part of that process at that point, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. Whereas, and same thing with film, you could do a film, you could go write a screenplay. Screenplays are very hard to get produced, but um, you could write a screenplay, potentially get it produced and in theaters, and you could potentially sit with, with, among the audience, but you are not, you're a passive participant at that point. When you're in theater and you're working with actors and you're in, especially in the rehearsal process, or let's say the, um, prior to opening night, you know, the tech the, mm -hmm. the rehearsals in which you have an invited audience and all that kind of stuff, you get to change, you modify the play as the responses you're seeing from the audience. So you have a change, you have a chance to be a part of the audience, to sit with them, see the reaction, kind of go, okay, this line needs to be cut or this line mm -hmm. needs to be added. It's a, it's a, um, it's a living product. It's a living experience. And so I just don't, how did I you know that though? How did how well, did you like? I mean, I totally agree, but how did you know that at that age or at that at that point in your life? Well, you know, 
I didn't, when I grew up, I, there wasn't theater. I mean, where I grew yeah. up in Northern California in a small little town, of like <laughs> 4,000 people, there was no theater. You yeah. know, we had like a, we had a, a Shakespearean troupe come by one time and do a student show, but I, I really kind of bumped into it in college um, when I was in, when I was also in ROTC and, you know, I wow. took a playwriting class and I was like, holy cow. And it just kind of blew my mind. And then I started going to the shows, the, the plays that were being produced at the university. And it just was, I'd never experienced that before. And at that point it was like, that's what I just fell in love with. Not as an actor. I have done directing and I've directed like operas and some plays, but really as a creator, you just kind of like, holy cow, you can create the whole world and people are going to populate it. And then people are going to come see it and experience it. And it's just amazing. Amazing. Where'd you go to college? So I did my bachelor's degree at Chico state, which is in Northern California. Okay. And so, so, so that was, it was that theater program that got you. Yes. Then. Yep. I just want to yep. know where, who to give credit to. Okay. So Chico yeah. Chico State. State okay. One of my professors was Randy Wanzong. He was extremely helpful and kind of, and he's, and he gave me, and we stayed in contact even after college and he would read my plays and give me feedback, you know? And so, but that's where it kind of began. And then, um, and then I did some postgraduate studies in theater at, uh, University of Washington up here in Seattle. Mm. And, and that's where I kind of went, this is what I want to do. And that's where from there I applied to the San Diego state program. Got you. So it was kind of always percolating in the back of your mind as you were going through your military career, that this might be a viable path. And then finally you made the move and went to yep. grad school. Yep. What were you doing to pay the bills as a reservist? Were you on active duty so much that you didn't, you could just be a reserve bum or did you actually have to get a job job? Well, I was working in professional theater. I mean, okay. that, it was the mixture of those two, you know, okay. I was, but we were, we were not wealthy. You know what I mean, I right. mean, it was when you're working for nonprofit theater and yeah. you are in the reserves, <laughs> then it's a, you know, you're constantly, it's a constant um, financial battle, you know, in that regard. But my feeling was part of the payment was an experience you know what i mean in both mm -hmm. worlds mm -hmm. part of that you know you're not making a lot of money but the experience alone what you're like the wind in your facing you know like i said most people what's ironic is i know people now that are friends of mine and such that are in their 50s and 60s and they are you can tell if they didn't serve in the military there's a void there mm. There's like something, a rite of passage that they never experienced. And I can, yeah. I can sense it and I can feel it because they'll discuss it with me. They don't say it in those words, but right. they just missed that part that, of their, of, that could have been part of their life. And so when, um, when I uh, look back at things, I wouldn't trade it. I yeah. wouldn't trade that military experience, nor would I trade the theater experience. They're, the two are... They're not, they don't relate, but they are, they have aspects to them that are just kind of unique and out of this world, you know? So how logistically did that work? Because I can, I, I thought seriously about staying in when we started this theater and I was like, there's no way I got to shit or get off the pot. I was like, I can't. Um, Cause again, 
It was a guard unit. It was a special operations guard unit, high op tempo, deployed every one of the last, whatever it was, five or six years that I was in. And um, and I was like, there's no way, because I'm going to jump on deployments and I would need to jump on deployments. And then how the hell do you run a theater? How do you work at a, a nonprofit theater with the ebb and flow of a theater schedule while you have a special operations op tempo that you have to keep up, even when it was during, you know, peacetime? That, that's still a high op tempo. So how did you manage that? It was hard. To be honest, it was really hard in terms of like I was teaching. So I was in a grad program at San Diego State. And as part of that grad program, I also I had a teaching job. I taught uh, an acting class. Right. And so I had I was right in the middle of the teaching of that first that first semester. And I got a call and I had to at my at my unit and I had to take a call and it was a classified phone call. And they said, we need you to brag. And I said, okay, um, can you give me a little more? And they, and it was because we were initially, we initially were going to invade Haiti. We were going to jump in mm. and that's how that was going to play out. And so they said, we need you, we need you at Bragg in a week. And so, um, so I said, okay. And so I had to find a replacement teacher and I left and like, I just, wow. I mean, literally, I couldn't discuss it. It was a classified op at that point, and I couldn't discuss it. And so I literally just got on a plane, and then, you know, and then we ended up walking in because um, it was President Carter, um, oh, it was wow. Colin Powell, and someone else, uh, one of the senators who had talked to the junta, the Haitian military junta that was in power, and, and said, you guys got to go or else you know, we're going to have American troops land. And so um, it didn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't an invasion, so to speak, but we, uh, but we did go. And so there's a lot of times I had to kind of just grab a bag and then, you know, be gone for several months. At that point I was gone for like, I think seven months. Um, But, you know, Kosovo, I was gone for, I think 10 to 12 and Iraq was 13. So how much did that fuck up your career? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or how much did it fuck up the theaters that you were working with where they're like, dude, we're nonprofit theater. We don't have, we're not, we can't just backfill you, you know, like now we're yeah. losing that. Did that happen or did you well, snap all those landmines? They knew when I came in, like I said, that first theater that I first started at was the Old Globe Theater and they hired me while I was in Haiti. So they yeah. knew I was a soldier and I told them flat out, you know, I mean, they, they, I said, you have to understand that this is, you know, when the, when the flag goes up, I've got to go. And so, um, and so that every theater that I worked with was aware of that okay. um, because there's no, sometimes I'd also have to be gone for like a month, you know, right. for, for training, right? Yeah. yeah. For training yeah. or different exercises that were taking place, you know, like in, uh, we went to Korea and we went to Italy and some other places, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, it does, it can be a challenge when you're dual tracking, when mm-hmm. you're tracking on a civilian career and you're tracking on a military career. But I have to say my military career landed right where I wanted it to be because as a major, you don't normally get to still command a unit, but when you're in the special operations community, that is a unique environment. And so like in my unit, a major, you were a major was the commander. Mm-hmm. And I had a major 
underneath me. I had two majors underneath me and I had several captains underneath me, which is not a unique company command kind of structure. But um, so for me, it all, the military side played out. I couldn't, you know, it played mm-hmm. out exactly as I, I couldn't mm-hmm. have even hoped that it would play out like it did. And so I was very proud of that and I was pleased. Were the theaters able to put you in, knowing that you were in the military, did they have to calculate that ahead of time and go, hey, maybe David doesn't get this assignment. Maybe we don't hire him for that or we don't use him in this capacity because we can't put that much weight on him because we're not sure if he's if something comes up. And even if it's just a month that he's out, that's going to screw us. Did you ever get any sense of that or was that never an issue? You know, it didn't, I didn't ever get that sense because, um, I had, I, I really feel like I had a good rapport with the people who had brought me on board to those theaters. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Like I was at the old globe theater. They knew about that aspect of my life. Um, I was at the Pasadena playhouse and, mm. uh, Sheldon Epps, who was at the old globe with me, went over to take over the artistic director position at Pasadena playhouse. And so he asked me to come up there. So he certainly knew. And I launched uh, Kosovo when I was with him. Mm. Um, what was ironic, I have to say, is that when I was at the rep, you know, you're you're in Seattle of all environments, and everyone knew I was deploying because we, I had already been on a couple of classified exercises and um, in preparation for uh, the ramp up for that. Mm. And so I told them I have to go. I, I said I'll, I have to leave at the end of this week. And so my you know, a lot of my colleagues would have these anti-war signs and protests oh, and, they'd, yeah. you know, they'd be walking down the, the hallway, but they'd be hugging me goodbye, good luck on their way to an anti-war protest, you know? <laughs> and so, but what I also think the value of that is, is that they understood that they're, these are soldiers who they would know mm-hmm. and they it put a human face behind the military instead of just an anonymous organization you know what i mean and so in that regard i was glad to kind of straddle both worlds because i could explain to my civilian theater cohorts why i was in the military and what value i felt it had and i can explain sometimes to a lot of the military didn't know i was in theater i was Um, like yeah Yeah. i kept that very compartmentalized and that's kind of the nature of an intelligence officer anyway but that was kind of very compartmentalized in that regard but, um, and we really didn't, you know, what was interesting was that we didn't, politics were never a part of our, our life in the military. And I think that's, right. and that's rightfully so, you know, I don't, people don't know, I don't know political, the political leanings of my soldiers. They don't know my political leanings or any of that kind of stuff. It was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. And, um, so in that regard, uh, it was great. I really liked straddling. But I could explain to them the value of journalists. You know, they would complain about why don't the journalists write uh, uh, always good stories about what's happening over here and all that kind of stuff. And I said, that's not their role. I'd have to explain what the role of journalism is and the pillar of democracy it is to have that, that, that voice out there that can offer criticism and a different viewpoint um, and is not a pro- propaganda tool of the government. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, that was a view most of my soldiers, they didn't always agree with or understand. What did it mean? Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the cultural straddling that you did, because that is a significant thing. Um, and I'm, the specific moments I'm thinking of that I could imagine would 
be difficult for me, and I don't know, if, and so I'm going to ask if they were difficult for you, is when you come back from something, deployment, training exercise, something, and that downshift into a civilian battle rhythm, and then an arts environment where, okay, it's a completely different muscle set that I kind of have to adopt now. What was the transition like for you? And did you, how much, for lack of a better phrase, how much self-care did you have to do to make that transition work and make sure you were back in the right headspace and there wasn't any leakage from your military personality into your civilian one? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I was kind of the same person in both environments. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And what I mean by that is this. Like, I would have, like, in the military side, I would have training meetings, right, with my staff. And it would be, um, you know, all the different team sergeants and uh, the officers, and we'd be having a discussion about what's coming up and what I what my expectations were. And so what would happen would be, I, I tend to talk a little professorially sometimes in the military, and I had to clarify something uh, at one of those train, team meetings. And I had to say, listen, folks, here's the deal. It may sound like I'm asking you to do something. I'm not asking you to do something. I'm telling you, to, I'm telling you, you're going to do this. You know what I mean? And I said, I just had to kind of clarify that because I would yeah. often say, Hey, would you please do da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe in raising my voice. I didn't feel like, I felt like that you've already lost the argument or discussion if you have to be yelling at people. And so I never did that. And then what would be in the theater world was you get some contentious personalities there, right? Right. Some very contentious personalities because there's a lot of egos involved. Well, a lot of times they would send me in to deal with those because I had no, I had no, uh, it wasn't an issue. I was dealing with in the military, two-star generals that I had to sometimes have discussions and sometimes arguments with about how to fight an insurgency, right? Because they were conventional force two-star. And so we'd have those kind of arguments in, you know, that there's a lot of that alpha male kind of personalities uh, at the division staff level. Sure. And so, you know, dealing with someone that's in the theater world who may be puffing up their chest a bit, you know, and they would, they, I would go in and I'd be like the, the problem solver because it's like, listen, here's what we need you to do. And they're that, that, that kind of, uh, I don't know, posturing had no effect on me because it was like, listen, this is just the bottom line. And it was so, it wasn't a huge, the transition wasn't as huge for me from one world to the next mm. in that regard. Mm. But I did find, <laughs> to be honest, in all honesty, there was sometimes a transition when I would come home. And how do I say this? Um, when you're gone, when you're gone for 13 months, you know, your absence creates a wound in the family mm -hmm. and that wound has to heal as it should. But what happens is, you know, your like my time frame. I don't know. Were you redeployed to either Afghanistan or Iraq? Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. So your time frame is when I left. So for me, my time frame was February, 2003, right? That's where my mm -hmm. mind was locked. Cause that's the last moment I saw my family. Mm-hmm. And then I come back and it was like April, 2004, mm -hmm. but you come back and all you're thinking about that whole time is I can't wait to be back. It's going to be great. You know, we'll do all the things that we used to do and all that kind of stuff. 
but you come back and the world has gone on without you, which is a natural progression because the kids still grow up and they have now gotten used to your absence and rightfully so. So that was always, that was a culture shock. It was a little bit of a culture shock. And so um, it became an issue because that was my third deployment. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also, you know, like I said, when I first came back, PTSD wasn't even the word that was being, that wasn't the acronym. And so when I first came back, I, I will admit, you know, sometimes my wife and I would get, not my ex-wife to clarify, but my, we would get into a discussion or an argument, I would say, and I would be, I would be, I would launch in terms of, I was like arguing, like I'd be arguing with the yeah. full board colonel mm-hmm. in the talk, you know what I mean? And so it was too aggressive and, um, but I didn't. I couldn't see, I was in the middle of it. I didn't see from the outside looking in uh, the issues I was kind of dealing with. You know what I mean? So that was a harder landing mm. more than the civilian. Well, the civilian environment was just the fact that you don't belong. I mean, you know, you come back and the skills that kept you alive yeah. in a combat zone are definitely not applicable in a civilian environment and the civilians have no clue or understanding of what that, why you're doing the things you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse on this. I just, uh, I'm just trying to project what I can imagine might have been some issues, but to come back and be in the theater world right away and the family life, I, I totally get like that makes sense. Um, but then to not have, you're not even dealing with the family dynamic on base. You're dealing with it in the context of a civilian world where there might not be the understanding, the, the, the intellectual or or experiential framework to even understand what you're going through. Um, did you find the theater to be a supportive environment or was it kind of like y'all are Martians for about six months until I kind of get centered again. But what what was that like? For well, I think, was that even a thing? Yeah, well, I think the cha- here's one of the challenges I think that reservists face and National Guard folks face that's different from the from the active duty side of the house. You know, we came back first of all, the first thing that happened, which was not great, was you have all these, you know, people are training up, soldiers are training up at Fort Bragg, and they've got all these damn rifle ranges going off. And that would drive us fucking crazy. Because we would hear gunfire all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're used to coming back when you hear gunfire, it's not a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Or you hear cannons, you know, the artillery going off. So that was not a great, it's not a great mm-hmm. landing. But the thing is, is that we were literally in Bragg for 10 days and then out, yeah. you know? So you, there's no, whereas active duty folks, you know, they have a support network that kind of is there for the duration. And they get back and there's still that, mm-hmm. that, um, those folks in which you can kind of understand what you've gone through. Um, you've got the camaraderie that mm-hmm. doesn't happen on the reserve side, the reserve side. First of all, you just want to get the hell out of Dodge, right? But right. you scatter to the four winds. And so I was like a soldier standing in the middle of Seattle and there was no one that reflected my viewpoint yeah. or, yeah. Um, or could understand what I was experiencing. So it was very, 
that was very isolating in a lot of ways. Um, and there's nothing really to be done about it. And that's why when people ask you, you know, they, the theater folks wanted to welcome, you know, they welcomed you back, but even my theater environment, the people that I had, when I left the people that I had worked with were not the same people I came back to. There were different people, uh, like different yeah. staff. There had been a staff change huh. yeah. while I was gone. And so it just did not, it didn't feel like the place I'd left. And so it was a just, it was a challenging time, I would say, in many, many ways and uh, emotionally. And my father had passed away when I was overseas. Oh, and so, God. yeah, of course. And my dog died while I was overseas. So, all these things are just like, well, it's like, sound like a yeah. bad country western song. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it was a challenging time. Am I right in thinking that all that then built towards that straight line to writing um, Another Day in Baghdad? Yeah. Yes, in that um, it was a way to to voice something without having to voice something, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. It was a way to kind of say, here's my perspective. And in the play, I have like these moments of monologues where some soldiers, you know, are very supportive of the conflict because there are a, a variety of viewpoints, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to reflect those. And my unit, um, we had uh, two female soldiers. Um, and so there's that those characters as well were part of the play. Um, so I wanted to have a female presence in there because that's how my unit was comprised. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great way to kind of be able to express without having to stand on stage myself and say, blah, 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 yep. blah. You know? Yes. Yes. hundred um, percent. Which, which I would the, never do. Right. And, and, and I can, I can only imagine, of course. Um, was this the first play that you'd written? Or had you written a bunch of other ones by then? Well, I, you know, I I wrote some others, but this is the first play that really kind of landed for me in terms okay. of like feeling like I was able to focus on the writing. I wasn't, you know, it, it was very hard even working in theater. I was a commander. And so I was, I would be getting calls at the theater from my unit all the time. And I'd have to resolve issues so I was oh, wow. dual hatting constantly. Oh, yeah. So yeah. when I retired, it was it was really good to be able to focus on the creative side exclusively. Yeah. And I will say another thing that was really a significant change was I got connected with the Writers Guild Initiative. So the Writers Guild Initiative at that time they were looking to do what do you know, we have this, there were a nonprofit that's affiliated with the writers guild East, you know, the union. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were one of the writers um, was asked to do it and said, he goes, he said he couldn't do it. Uh, but he says, I know this guy who's a veteran writer. Uh, and so they asked me to be a part of that. And I'll tell you that resolved the isolation Oh, instantly wow because now you're in a group of writers and you know most writers you work in solitude but now you had a group of writers fred was one of those that you just kind of feel like i belong yeah and so that helped ground me in a lot of ways and then we started doing writing workshops for our first one was in columbus ohio where we worked with a uh, national guard unit marine national guard unit that had taken severe casualties and mm-hmm. so that was where we did, uh, we started doing our workshops and I was like, 
this is home because wow. I'm among soldiers again. I'm become among those. I've got both brethren. I've got my military yeah. brethren and my riding brethren. And that's where I just felt like uh, I felt complete again. Yeah. It emerged and it intersected at the perfect yep. point. Yep. Would you be the writer that you are if you had not gone to Iraq? Do you think that w- that did a lot for you? Artistic? You know, I've had people ask me, you know, do you think Iraq defined you? Mm. And I think Iraq, I think of my life more as a mosaic mm-hmm. rather than, um, than it being like the only the key moment. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, my father had passed away while I was there, which mm-hmm. was a big challenge. Um, and there was a lot of things that happened there, but I don't feel like that's the define that I don't think that defined me as a person. I think the military, the 22 years in the military certainly did. Sure. Made me who I am today. And and I'm and I feel very grateful for having had that experience. But I don't look at the Iraq alone as a standalone because, you know, Haiti had some aspects to it that, mm-hmm. I, you know, you, you learn, you grow when you go through those things. Same thing with Kosovo. Um, so I just think of the I, entirety of the. Experience. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And let me clarify a little bit, I guess, what I mean, because, yeah, I, I, I can absolutely see how that would make more sense as a mosaic than as building to a climax necessarily in Baghdad. Um, I guess what I mean is without all those significant emotional events that seemed like they happened during that time for you, with your father, your dog, Iraq itself, having command, um, if did that push you to the place that you had, and then that sense of aloneness afterwards, that you had to tell these stories, and it pushed you emotionally to a place where it um, opened up a vein that really led to the next stage of your life, the writing and all that, but it started it off on a highly emotional charged subject that, that kind of took you over the hump. Does that kind of make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah. And so Jerry Manning, my friend, Jerry, who's unfortunately passed away, but he was so critical in that aspect because he served as dramaturg and he was just kind of like Mm. there with me along the journey. And, you know, we didn't always agree on every aspect, but the thing was, and he directed the play as well. And so the thing was, I just felt like that was the way to tell my particular story. And mm-hmm. it's a story of a unit, to be honest. It's not about one person. It's about a unit, you know, that goes into the situation, into the Iraq situation. But from that point forward, I just thought, you know, writing plays is a way to, how do I explain this? I explore the darkness of life through the playwriting. And that is a way, whether it gets produced or not produced, just the act of putting pen to paper and creating a story or a narrative that allows me to, whether it's like a Lubyanka situation mm-hmm. of a prison in Russia, or it's about you know um, dealing with other aspects like loss or other aspects that... Um, it, it just gives voice to the things that I, I just wish I had had that ability when I was in high school, you know, yeah. all the stern and wrong yeah. of high school. I thought, God, <laughs> if I just would have been a better writer at that point, you know, um, right. because it just became a, it grounded me. Yeah, It grounded me because I felt like 
I had a voice and not that, not a voice meaning that I could write about the things that I felt and that made all the difference in the world. When did photography start for you? So photography started for me, you know, I'd always take photographs. I had very, you know, I had those little Instamatic kind of cameras when Mm. I was in high school, Mm -hmm. but I would always take photographs of friends and stuff like that. But photography started for me really in college because um, my major was journalism and photography. So both those aspects. Mm. And so I just started shooting and then it, and then I took a camera with me whenever I went, whenever I deployed. So I created a book eventually that's called Deployed, colon, um, Haiti, Kosovo, Iraq. And it's just photographs mm-hmm. that I would take. It's those quiet moments, you know, not the, because obviously when it's a, a stressful combat kind of situation, I was your commander first, your soldier first, right? But it's those quiet moments when you can kind of just catch your breath and you would see, see the culture or see the way of life. I would try to, I would capture those photographically because I had to keep reminding myself of the humanity of what we were trying to achieve. You know what I mean? Because it was challenging at times. And I thought, always know that this is about them, not about me and not about us. This is about the people that we're trying to help. And photographically, that was a way to kind of keep reminding myself of that and keep connected to that throughout the whole situation. Why do, why do you think it ended up in your life that theater was kind of for the dark side and photography became for finding the light? What, why did that split happen, do you think? I think because, like photography, first of all, if you're in a combat, as you know, as you know, in a combat environment, the things that are not pretty um, are often in the midst of other things that are going on. And so... Uh, and that's not when you bring a camera out, right? Right. Because you have other responsibilities. But writing, and I write novels now too, because the writing is from an inner monologue, right? Mm. It's from a perspective. It's from mm. someone's viewpoint. And you can explore, you can explore those parts of your of of this of things that catch your eye with writing. Whereas photog- photography, it's a it's a moment in time. And it's a glance, you know what I mean? And so those two are very different, very different art forms. And I think that that's what intrigues me about each. When you take a photograph, bam, it's done. You go into the dark room, you print it. It's a final product. Writing is just the opposite of that. Yeah. It takes years to sometimes to write these damn things. Yeah. And yeah. even after you write it, you still have to go through sometimes gatekeepers like literary managers, or you have if you do it on the theater side, or you have to go through publishers and agents on the novel side, you know. So yeah, a book is still a finished product when you write it, but a play is just a spine of a story until it's produced. Yeah. Yeah. So gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. I I, want, I guess I want to press. I want to ask about smoke and your time in West Africa. But before I okay. do, do you have wanderlust, especially when you left the military and suddenly you're not being sent on the government's dime to go to Europe and to go to these places? Do you feel a need to travel? You know, I do. But right now, I'm focusing on traveling in the United States because, mm-hmm. um, like, I just went to Yellowstone a year ago for the first time, and huh. so I just took eight days 
and did almost like an artistic retreat where I just took my camera, I took um, a notepad and I took a computer and I would do photography during the day and I would do writing at night. Wow. And wow. it was like, it was incredible. And so um, I'm trying to do that with, there's so much I haven't seen. I mean, I've seen a lot of the United States. I've driven, you know, across it many, many times, yeah. but that's always on a, that's always on a Palmel. Like, I need to get to Bragg. I need to get to right. you know, right. Fort Huachuca in Arizona. It's like, whatever. But I just want to explore the U S first. And then, um, and I'm going to start, like, I'm going, uh, you know, like I'm going to go to Mexico here probably in mm. November and, and start hitting some of our, um, you know, I'll probably go back to Europe at some point, but right now it needs to be, I want to do this more in the Western hemisphere. Gotcha. So how did smoke come about? Where did the concept come from? Did you have to pitch it before you got no, bothered with the subject or what? How did no, that it was a newspaper article. It was a newspaper article. I think it was in the Washington post, but it was a newspaper article that was about these workers who had been cremation workers right like cremation mm -hmm. in in liberia is not popular that's not the way they bury their dead right right and so that's more of a hindu or uh, other cultural you know from other parts of the country uh do cremation mm -hmm. and so what happened was these people who had been who had been workers that were trying to fight the ebola epidemic were now that it was residing or that receded were ostracized from their communities because they were involved mm -hmm. in the cremation part of the process, right? They were grave diggers or, um, or actually did the cremations. And so I just identified with it in that it struck a chord in my heart that it feels like in some ways that's also like a soldier, right? Mm -hmm. And that you do the thing that needs to be done and then you come back and people are kind of like, they don't necessarily, they know you needed to do that, but they don't necessarily approve. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I thought, so I started doing research and I did a ton of research to try to understand as much as I could. But then I realized, you know what, this is a culture that I need to experience firsthand. These are people I need to speak to in person. And so, so I went to, so I got a couple of grants that I applied for and I went to Liberia and I spent a week there. And I just did interview after interview with one was a um, cremation worker and they speak. And also I went to Liberia because I don't, because I, I wanted to go where I could speak English. Right. Yeah, Although right. there's a, there's a strong accent, but I could, but we could, we can converse. And so, um, but one was a cremation worker. One was a grave digger. One was a doctor, a pediatrician at the local JFK hospital there. Um, there was a protester against the cremation. So mm -hmm. I, I just interviewed a variety of people because I really wanted their voice in the play to be accurate. And so some of the, some of the things that are said in the play are directly from people I spoke to. So I recorded it, videotaped it, photographed it. So I was able to capture all my various art yeah. forms and I created a photographic series called smoke. And I created a play called smoke. And then also we did, I did a short film um, on the same name. And so that's, that's where that all kind of came about. How did it feel when it was done? Did you feel like you had closed the chapter or was there still stuff that you're like, 
And there's still some meat on the bone there that I'd like to revisit or still. You know, I, no, I feel like I, I wrote what I wanted to write about. I just, you know, like any play, you want it to get produced more, right? Mm. And so, because um, it's not my story at this point. It's their story. And I really would like them to, you know, especially with the pandemic yeah. that we just experienced. Yeah. You know, um, this is a similar kind of situation. And I just wanted their story to get more, more exposure. Now that photograph, some of the photographs I took, it just recently was in a, the Royal Photographic Society's uh, international exhibition, which was in Bristol, England. Hmm. Um, so it's been involved there. And it's, it's also been in some uh, various museums and things of that nature. So those photographs have been exposed. Um, but I'd like to get the play, of, you know, of course, get the play, get more exposure. What's next for you? What, are, you talked about right, dry, you know, going around the country, taking pictures, writing. Is, are you just in a, crea- a fertile, creative time where you're just out there just trying to mine as much as you can from yourself? Or is there specific things you're focused on and trying to close the loop on? So what's interesting is actually I'm closing out some chapters mm. in that, like I was doing this one, these two photographic series, three photographic series. And those are actually kind of closed out. I've kind of completed Mm. them and I achieved what I had wanted to do with them. But what I'm working on right now, actually, is with another combat vet, uh, Iraq combat vet, who um, his name is Sean Davis. And so he and I are working on, he's a great artist and he's a really strong writer, Mm. but we're working on a six book graphic novel. Wow. Yeah. And so we have, um, and so that's what that whole, the Yellowstone experience was about was I was trying to figure out the last two books of the, of the series. And that's what I used that time for like an artistic retreat just to figure out what we, what we wanted to happen. And so we have completed. um, So I've written four of the books outlined the last two and he's drawn storyboarded uh, the first book. And so now we're just getting at a point where we're going to start pitching it toward um, toward agents. And that actually is based on, it starts out in Iraq and it's actually based on uh, kind of a true thing that took place in Iraq. And so goes from there. Wow. Is it, um, is this going to be the start of doing a lot more graphic novel work for you or is it just take it one step at a time and this is what's in front of you? You know, it's kind of one step at a time. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. uh, I've had some interest. We had some interest in like a friend of mine wanted to read the thing as a screenwriter. And mm. so that's something that, you know, when you do a storyboard for a graphic novel, that is essentially yeah. like you're creating a storyboard for a movie. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so we're, but we want to kind of create this story, this screenplay for it ourselves. Um, Cause I feel like it's a viable, we feel like it's a viable story, but uh so, you know, I don't know. Graphic novels are so damn time intensive. You know, because it's not just the writing, it's the drawing. And then you go back and redraw. I mean, you know, it's a very fluid kind of process. So it takes years in the making. So I don't know. I don't know if that, if I'm going to do, we, we wrote this series with the natural arc that concludes after six books. Mm. Okay. Some of the primary characters can continue if that's so desired, but it's not something at this point. I have a need to write about. Gotcha. David, uh, tell people how they can follow you, keep up with what you're doing, 
you know, just keep tabs on all the different stuff you have going on? Well, I have a, I have a website that's, it's actually just for my photography. Cause that's really what I really put out into the world um, in that regard. And that's just David Tucker photography.com. Um, they can see some of the smoke series. There's two other series is there. One is called dance works. I didn't really want to see, I tend to compartmentalize, but I work with dancers uh, since 1995. And so that's all about dancers. Um, and then have a series that's the smoke series and then uh, the deployed series. And then I have another series called the human landscape, which is just, you know, figure studies, both in studio and mm -hmm. in the landscape. That's awesome. Um, there, I, I feel like we could really do another three hours. Uh, I think like we just, there, there, oh there are so many more aspects to, to what you are covering and it's, it's a pleasure to talk. You're so articulate about, you know, what you've done, what you've seen, what you've experienced and how you've put that into various artistic media. Um, this is a blast, man. Come back and talk. Let's do this again at some point. Yeah. Next time I'm in New York, uh, we need to grab a beer together. Well, we definitely need to do that too. All right, man. We'll talk down the road. Okay. Crazy chat with you, Chris. That was the savage wonder of David Tucker. Um, really enjoyed that. Hope you guys did too. I'm sure you did. David is just, um, I think I can dime David out. He'll shoot me an email if he if he's deeply offended by what I'm about to say, but I'm going to tell one tale out of school because David um, mentioned to me offline. He's like, hey, I know I talked a lot and all that. I was like, no, dude, that was like perfect. That was like fully fleshed out, fully developed answers, but not rambling, uh, which is a, is a tough line to straddle. Um, and I really enjoyed uh the rabbit holes David went down to the extent he even went down rabbit holes. I think he pretty accurately answered every question uh, without distraction, but it was just full bodied answers. I just really enjoyed talking to him. Just a great dude. Um, and at some point when he comes to the East coast, uh, it'll be great to get together with him in person. And who knows, maybe we'll slap a mic on him then and do another episode then. Okay. Uh, on that note or not on that note, actually, completely the opposite shifting from that topic. Let me do some shameless plugs here. Uh, the biggest shameless plug that we have obviously is our Savage Wonderground event, our very first Savage Wonderground event coming up on November 11th, Veterans Day in Old Town Alexandria at the beautiful, and I mean beautiful, Principal Gallery in Old Town Alexandria, Virginia. Um, I got to give a shout out to Michelle Marceau who runs the Principal Gallery. She is uh, just awesome, uh, and her and her staff, I, I just couldn't have asked for a better, more welcoming venue for our very first Savage Wonderground. But if you're asking yourself, what the hell is that? What is Savage Wonderground? Why is this such a big deal? Let me tell you. So Savage Wonderground basically came up because of the Savage Wonder Festival, um, which came about because of this podcast. So this is all one big feedback loop, essentially. But- Savage Wonderground uh, basically took the idea of the Savage Wonder Festival where we had veterans in all these different multimedia artistic fields. Um, and we just decided to do it on a much smaller scale, micro festivals. And I, I, I say that, I should put that in your quotes because I, I'm not sure I've really found the right nomenclature to classify Savage Wonderground. Um, it kind of depends on the venue because each Wonderground that we do or that we, the one we're doing and then the ones we plan to do in the future are completely unique. Uh, 
they're designed around the space that we're in, the physical space. They're designed with whatever the, whoever the local veteran artists are that we're using. It We curate who that is. We design the show specifically around their material and their media. So, um, so it's each one is a little bit different, but uh, you could call it immersive theater. You could call it micro festival. Um, but the idea is to have a bunch of different veteran artists working to in in a actual performance in an actual show that develops a narrative or a theme um, in a way that uh, an appreciative audience can understand and get a kick out of. So um, the very first one, as I said on Veterans Day in Old Town Alexandria is going to feature Buck Bolliard, one of our favorites, a uh, prolific writer, now editor of um, you know Dirtbag Magazine, which has been a very cool venture uh, that he's put together. Um, our own Kay Dexter, uh, former Marine veteran and poet. The unbelievable singing talent of Jesus Daniel Hernandez, classically trained singer, uh, protege of Placido Domingo, and Iraq War veteran. And this time, we're going to feature the art of military daughter Invader Girl. So basically what happened is Invader Girl gave us three paintings. And Jesus, Dex, and Buck are going to do um, build narratives and build stories and build themes out of each of the paintings. And the way that uh, Principal Gallery is set up is, or the way that we're using it in the, the setup that Principal Gallery has, is to migrate the show between three rooms. So each room will have a painting and an artist talking about it and, uh, and riffing off it. And then the show will migrate from room to room to room. And we'll do, you know, we'll have wine and cheese and hors d'oeuvres and fun stuff like that uh, to class it up. And that will be very cool. Uh, but that's what we're going to be doing. That's going to be the first Savage Wonderground. So we would love to see you there. If you're in the greater DC Nova area, come on out and see us. Um, it's $20 tickets. The proceeds are split between us and the artists um, because, you know, we want everybody to, it's what we want this to be worth everyone's while. And we're not in it for hobbyists. We're in it for professionals and uh, professionals need to get paid. What do you think about that? So, that's the first Savage Wonder Ground event. If you want tickets or to find out more about it, go to savagewonder.com. Savagewonder.com, all one word, savagewonder.com, and you can get your tickets there. You can also get tickets at vetrep.org at our main site, um, but you got to go through a couple more wickets to get there. So the easiest thing is to go to savagewonder.com, and you'll see all the Savage Wonder lines of effort. Um, but you'll also see how to buy tickets right away because it's the button right there on the homepage. Very, very easy. And that'll take you to our Eventbrite, and you can buy tickets there. Uh, as far as VetRep goes, there is a bunch of stuff we're doing. Um, if you're in the Cornwall area, obviously we'd love to see you come out uh, to the parlor. Um, our Saturday night shows are just, I, I love them. I have so much damn fun at them. Uh, it's one of the few things we do that has a quick flash to bang that we put it together and throw it up every night on stage, uh, every Saturday night on stage. And it's just always a lot of fun. Um, so grateful to the local audience that comes out um, and you know gives us a sellout crowd every Saturday night. So if you're in the area, come on by. We have added a show 
on uh, November 12th. So if you're looking at the math and going, hey, that looks like there's a whole lot of stuff going on Veterans Day weekend from you guys. That's right. We're going to be in D.C. doing Savage Wonderground on the 11th, and then we have a show on September on November 12th. And uh, really every Saturday except the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we're going to have shows um, up until December 10th or so. And I, right now we are planning on having a Savage Wonderground, I should say, in December. Um, but a lot of details are still fuzzy as to where and exactly what date. But we'll have more stuff coming out on that soon. I have a general idea, but I can't say it yet. So we'll see. Anyway, a whole lot of stuff uh, going on, a whole lot of stuff to announce. For any and everything related to VetRep, the best thing to do is always to go to VetRep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org, VetRep.org. And you can find out all the Savage Wonder stuff there as well. You just have to click on a few more links. Uh, So if you go to SavageWonder.com, that's kind of your easiest uh, you know, A to B way to find out what's going on. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there are other things I could plug, but I won't. Uh, if you've stayed on the show for this long, thank you. Um, you must be really bored, <laughs> but I'll try not to take advantage and, and milk this for too much longer. Um, I need to thank our producer, Michael Neal, who every week kills himself to get these episodes out uh, on time and well done. And we deeply appreciate it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.